Hello and welcome back to episode 10 of the South London Press Football Pod. Happy New Year listeners and Happy New Year to the captain of the SLP Sportship, Richard Corley. Rich, how's the start of the year been for yourself? Uh, it's been okay, Ed. I hope you had a good Christmas and uh, yeah, I'm not going to wish you Happy New Year because we've probably done it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's been, it's, been, uh, it's been fine. We just roll along and sports desks, uh, unlike sort of other departments tend to be have to work quite a bit over Christmas because of the matches and stuff. And, uh, you know, we don't really get... We, obviously, there was a game on the weekend before Christmas. There was a game on the Boxing Day. We had a paper then. And obviously, matches uh, New Year's Day as well. So you get a few bits... You get a bit of downtime, don't you? But it's not too much. Plenty of football to, to chew over, that's for sure. Yeah, I think we have a lot to touch on and I think it's probably wise that we start with Charlton Athletic this time around. Um, since we last recorded a pod, we obviously wrote the Johnson Clark Harris story. Wigan forward Stephen Humphreys was another we've mentioned. You obviously wrote the story during this week about Connor Coventry and Plymouth defender Macaulay Gillespie was spotted at the Valley the other day. Uh, lots going on at SE7 in the past few weeks. Yeah, there has been. Um I was at the uh, Valley for the Oxford game and uh, it was not a happy Valley, that was for sure. Uh, there was a, a lot of anger. Uh, there was a lot of chants uh, that sort of were very, very critical of the team, very critical of Michael Appleton. Um, a couple of the players walked off without clapping the fans, uh, but the majority kind of did. Uh, sort of try and acknowledge the supporters that had stayed, but they were booed down the tunnel and uh, it's been a disastrous Christmas period. There's no getting away from that fact. Uh, now six without a win. It's completely shot a hole in the boat. That was, if there was a feeling they could still sail just about into the playoffs, there's been about three or four big holes appear in that boat and it's sunk. So that is not going to be what the rest of this season is about. There were a few people immediately afterwards in the press room uh, making the point that Charlton are only six points above the bottom four. Um, I think I'd be hugely surprised if Charlton ended up getting dragged into it. Uh, I think it would take a fairly major collapse beyond where we are now for that to happen. In saying that, it's uh, the big problem you've got is that Charlton should not be in the league position they are. They've got a better wage bill both with SE7 partners and before that with Thomas Sangard, that they should not be below some of these teams that they are below. And uh, I think the bigger problem is that in the season since they got relegated, there's only been one season they've even had a, a chance of getting in the playoffs. And mm. I think it's three in a row now where we are in January, start of January, and we're not talking about Charlton still being in the equation. So, yeah, it's really poor. I think... Off the back of that, there is a determination to do some stuff in the window. You touched on a few of the players that were mentioned. I think that there's a realisation probably that the loan signings 
haven't really paid off this time around. And I think that they will look to do permanent deals as much as they possibly can. I think they'll look to bring in players that they feel can give a real sea change to the, the kind of dynamics in the squad. And I think that there'll be players that they want to see as core players moving forward into next season as well as this one. This season's going to be tricky, though. I mean, at the end of the day, if Johnny Jackson found it difficult to uh, get a tune out of players when some of them knew they'd be going uh, in the second half of the season he was in charge. Um, and the fact of the matter is that as much as players want to uh, win games of football, have they got the same levels of motivation against teams that are genuinely going for something? They, they definitely need some results. There's some difficult matches coming up for them as well. I mean, uh, if you look at their fixtures, Charlton, I think the game against Port Vale this weekend is a really, really important one because mm. they just need to get some kind of result. After that, they're home to Peterborough. Uh, February is looking a fairly nasty month. They've got Derby at home, Reading away, Lincoln home, and they finish that month with Bolton away, Portsmouth home, Derby away. Now, I think if results don't haven't picked up in the meantime, there's going to be serious, serious issues. I think in the meantime, they will get some results. We're going to have to see if they manage to get some of these players over the line that they're looking at. Yeah. Uh, in terms of sort of the state of play with these deals, um, Johnson Clark-Harris, he's obviously one we, we wrote about the Charleston have inquired ahead of the January window, obviously from the Peterborough end, it sounds like they're saying that they've turned out multiple bids from Charlton, but what's the uh, what's the state of play with that one? Obviously, a, a phenomenal goal scorer at the level who, along with Alfie May, could uh, perform quite an exciting double act for for the for the addicts going forward. Yeah, I think um, it's a funny one actually. I saw a social media post that I can even remember actually. It said that Charlton's interest is like World Cups; it comes every four years, and it it linked to about three different stories that we've done as a paper on Johnson Clark Harris. The latest one was the one that you did, of course, um, uh, that uh, we had as the, on the back page uh, in a recent publication. And it's quite funny. I'd forgotten. So I'd, I'd, I'd remembered that there was a bid before for Johnson Clark Harris. At that time, it was bizarre because Charlton were under a transfer embargo. They had no money to spend. And I remember Bristol Rovers, their press guys, saying, this is going to happen. They've agreed a fee. And I'm thinking, but how can it happen if the team hasn't got any money to spend. And of course, it never happened. They bid for a player and it never materialised. It's not quite that this time round. Uh, I think the latest bid that Charlton went to was worth around, and obviously there's stuff involved probably as add-ons. I think it, I'm right in saying probably about £350,000. There's a suggestion that uh, Peterborough would look for around half a million for Clark Harris, who's out of contract at the end of the season. Now, I don't know. There's, you know, it's mentioned a fair few times that Dara McAntony, who's kind of gone on social media and said about uh, Charlton's bids for the player, it's been suggested he's difficult to negotiate with. So you've got to wonder how quickly this one gets resolved if it does. And factor in also that it's got to be worth enough to Peterborough that they let Clark Harris go because if they keep him and he scores, for argument's sake, another eight goals or ten goals or more and they get top two and get promoted or go out via the playoffs, keeping hold of him makes fairly good sense. Uh, certainly, it's been suggested to me that he's keen on the move to Charlton. Um, so, that's a positive. But as far as I'm aware, since Charlton's last offer that was made, 
they haven't kind of gone back and tried to push it in terms of increasing the terms. It's down to other people, I guess, to speculate whether they think the money they've offered is is good business or not. I mean, he is out. Of, he's not got a long contract, um, so that's where it's at. He is a without doubt a proven, proven League One centre forward, and I think one of the big problems that Charlton have had of late is with Chooks and Ek and Miles Lieber now. They've not been able to go from front from back to front quickly, and I think opposition teams know that if they are forced to go long, that they're not going to hold the ball. They're not going to, you know, retain it. And so, therefore, opposition teams can press them more heavily. Yeah. We've had it We've had it as well that the people have talked about Alfie May playing as a nine. Why is he playing wide? I think for Alfie May to play centrally, he probably does need someone to play off, like Chooks and EK, like Miles Lieburn. And I remember being at the Bolton game uh, when Alfie did play at the Valley in a central role. And he just... Two really big physical centre backs. He just didn't really get in. He just couldn't. He couldn't win that battle, and you wouldn't expect him to. And when Miles Lieburn came on in the second half of that game, Charlton began to get more purchase in the final third. They were able to play it up and play that way and mix it up a little bit. So, I think the striker's key. I think Clark Harris would be their number one choice. Stephen Humphreys is not a bad player at the level either, but I don't necessarily think he is the, the number one that they would be looking to go for. But whether they get Clark Harris, I mean, yeah, I, I guess we'll, we'll obviously be trying to keep on top of the story, but it doesn't feel like anything is close with that one. And it, I, I don't know what you'd think, Ed. I would think that Peterborough perhaps will look at it and say, let's roll it towards the back end of the window. And clubs that want a striker, they might come back with more money. I would think it makes sense for Peterborough to kind of hold tight, wouldn't you? Yeah, definitely. I also think that Johnson Clark Harris is probably in the the strongest position out of everyone in in this situation because he's entering the final six months of his contract, and in the summer, he's going to have the pick of his clubs, whether that's in League One, potentially bottom end of the Championship, high flying clubs in League Two. Obviously, we mentioned Wrexham. I saw Gillingham was mentioned by a, another outlet the other day, um, or po- possibly even abroad if he wanted to go and play his football there. So there's lots of options for for him. Um, I think the probably exciting thing maybe about Charlton, as I could imagine him and Alfie May absolutely tearing the league apart. You mentioned that Alfie May's, you mentioned to me that Alfie May's most productive spell came with Jackson Ek and, and Miles Eban through the middle with Johnson Clark Harris, a, a very proven striker in this this division and this level with those two together with Alfie May's form of late, it would be a be a very exciting duo for for, for the Addicts fans to watch. Yeah, I think as well that. Some of the indications are that Clark Harris is a big personality, and uh, th- th- I think I think there's a feeling that Charlton have got a bit have got a soft underbelly, and that when the going gets tough, they don't kind of get going. And I think that's another reason why Gillespie, uh, the Plymouth centre back, is being looked at. You know, he's you know got very very good reviews at Plymouth. Um, I mean, people have asked about whether the, there was reports a deal was off because Gillespie was at the game. Nothing's been announced. Um, people have sort of speculated he had failed the medical. Um, I, you know, as we record this now, that isn't the case. I think it is a fairly thorough medical because there is a fee involved, uh, which I think is a six-figure fee. So uh, as we stand, that isn't the case. He is still a player that Charlton are looking to sign. But mm. I think the feeling is, is that they need some... I think what is underlined for Charlton is that you can't just go with young players. Not that they 
not what they necessarily would do, but they've got so many players that have been out injured that you bringing in young players in this kind of scenario is very challenging for them. So I think that's why you're looking at Clark Harris. That's why they're looking at Gillespie. Connor Coventry is younger, but um, was excellent for MK um, when he was last in League One. By what Matt Taylor said, he was very, very good for them at, at Rotherham um, last uh, last season, in the second half of last season. A slight worry, again, you don't know if it's come out because he's been linked with Charlton, but I notice now there's talk that potentially Derby might be interested and Peterborough and Connor Coventry. Mm. Um, haven't heard that, but for sure, Charlton like him. Uh, one of the fans had asked, when we, one of someone on Twitter had asked, when I said about any questions, they'd asked about Greg Doherty from Hull. He is another player that is definitely on Charlton's list. Um, and I think there is the option, maybe they do more than one midfielder, because let's not forget, George Dobson at the moment, his future is unresolved. So, um, you know, as far as I'm aware, George Dobson has, has, has not accepted the two contract offers that Charlton have made him. Uh, Corey Blackett-Taylor, while we're touching on this, Again, I think there's been no communication since he was offered a deal before Christmas, which the club feel is a good one. So I think there's still a, you know, there's doubts over those two. Um, we don't think, I don't think at the moment there's been any bids for Corey, not in this window so far, but we're four days in, it's early days. Yeah. Um, with a question we've had on, on Twitter or X, I guess, as, as it's now known, Charles and Hack would like to know, You've just mentioned Corey Blackett-Taylor and George Dobson. Do you think there are going to be any other significant potential outgoings at Charlton this January window? Obviously, you wrote the story about Lou Watson the other day and Luton looking to recall him. So there's there's bits going on there as well. Yeah, it's a strange one with Louis Watson because I think people think that there is some kind of sort of issue behind the scenes, but it's not the way it's been portrayed to me. Um, uh, you know, uh, I think he's unhappy that he's not getting more game time. I think that they're probably. I think a while back he was good. It looked like everyone was kind of happy, but then recently Louis's not played too much. Karoy Anderson has come in and played the last couple of games in midfield, and so I think that with Louis Watson, there's a chance he'll go back. But I think there's no way that Charlton. I don't think Charlton have to do that deal because of how many games he has featured in. So what I'm saying is, I think if it happens, it would maybe be later in the window when uh, they've got players back or they've signed players. So, I mean, in terms of, I don't see every single game, but there's been a feeling that there's been a bit of naivety to some of his play and that maybe when he's come on, there is not been enough, some of the issues there have been have meant that they just don't feel it's quite right for him to be in the team at the moment. But the point I suppose you could make is that Chen Campbell was in a similar position. He wasn't involved and now he's back playing again. So, I don't necessarily, young players do have ups and downs, but I know there are fans that would rather see Louis Watson coming on in games than someone like Scott Fraser, who now, when you look at uh, social media and maybe even the reaction when he came on at the weekend, there seems to be a bit of negativity surrounding Scott Fraser and what he is contributing to the team at the moment. Um, So I think it's an interesting one with Watson. I don't think it's cut and dried he goes back. James and Bank was injured, as uh, so he won't be involved even if he stays on loan. I think he'll probably end up back at Udinese for treatment. Um, uh, Boban Tedic um, has got concussion at the moment. 
um, which is the reason he wasn't involved the other day. But my understanding is that he is going back to Man City. So that, that will be a loan that will come off the books as well. In terms of clearing some of the other players, I mean, one that you'd, I think, heard a bit about was that Terrell Thomas hadn't been offered a new deal. I think the club, particularly if they get Gillespie through the door, will probably be quite happy to probably uh, let Terrell go. Uh, I, don't, mm. I don't think he's got a long-term future there beyond the season, but I don't know if there's any more that you can add on that. Uh, just that I don't think contract talks have, have started at all, really, with him. So as far as that would be an indication that Charleston probably aren't looking to keep him beyond the end of the season. I saw that there was a links. I think it was the Black, was it Blackpool and Derby or some some other two League One teams he was being linked to. So that would sort of put two and two together, make me think that this will probably be Terrell Thomas's final six months of his Charleston Athletic contract. Or if you're looking with what they did at with Charlie Kirk, if if they can get this uh, this guy this defender in from from uh, Plymouth. And maybe there's a possibility of letting Thomas go six months early. I don't know whether that would be an option for Charles, and that's just me sort of speculating and looking at the situation from Thomas's point of view. But yeah, that yeah. Would, that would be make sense. Yeah, I, I think I think in this scenario, quite often, fat, you know, it's about the wage bill, isn't it? So at the end of the day, I think if Charlton could get to if they get if they've got enough cover, I think mm. they probably would say Terrell Thomas can leave. We're not expecting a fee. We just want to loosen that money on the wage bill, and that's why. Quite often, fans don't always think about the kind of the financial aspect that clubs aren't going to pay fees. Not for players that haven't really sort of shone. I mean, they've got a couple of other young centre backs there. You know, they've got Deji Eloere, they've got Lucas Ness. Both of them are out of contract. I believe that Deji's been offered a new deal, um, and Lucas Ness, the club have an option, which I would imagine they're going to take up on Lucas Ness. I think the likelihood is again, if they do get the defenders in, they want. I think the likelihood is that Deji, Lucas, or both of them could potentially go out on loan, you know, in the second half of the season just to get more game time because it's it's going to benefit them. You know, Lucas Ness did well last year, but then had quite a bad injury and he sort of hasn't come back and been able to hold down a place in the side. Yeah. Um, just finally, Rich, while we're on Charleston Athletic, in terms of Michael Appleton, obviously you mentioned it wasn't a happy valley at the Oxford game the other day. I think it's no win in eight and the the fans' frustration starting to build. But this is clear that this is Andy Scott's man and they're going into their sort of first full transfer window together, aren't they? So there's no... Uh, someone's asked on Twitter, DCF has asked whether the higher-ups are sort of perceiving Appleton's performance. I mean, he's under threat, but uh, as far as you understand, I don't think that's the situation, is it? No, we're touching it in the paper today in a, a, a piece that sort of did just a, a bit of a sort of round-up piece or sort of take on where things were at. And I think... At the moment, I think there is an understanding that if you are missing Alfie May, it was only one game Alfie May missed, obviously, with the back injury uh, so far, but you're missing Chooks and EK, you're missing Miles Lieber, uh, you're missing Terry Taylor, Panucci Camera, uh, you know, the list sort of goes on really for Charlton, uh, Conor McGrandles, uh, like those kind of players. If you're missing those players, it's probably you've got to accept that it's going to have an impact, and it, it has had an impact undoubtedly. I know people said Oxford had injuries and didn't have players available, and I, I get that, but I think you know the squad is pretty stretched and it needs reinforcement. So I think at the moment, I don't think there's any immediate pressure on Michael Appleton, and so I think the likelihood is that once they get some of those players back and people like Terry Taylor and Camera. Um, and EK, they're not a million miles away from being back. I think once they're back, if the results didn't change and if they've made signings, 
I think Michael Appleton, it's not his first rodeo in management. He's going to know that the pressure will come on top of him. Um, there undoubtedly is his sort of popularity or standing with Charlton fans has been, uh, you know, when you look at it at the moment, it is a difficult environment for him. Um, I guess it's how much you can rebuild from that. If they finish the season really, really strongly and there's optimism for next year, next season, maybe that's, you know, maybe that helps turn it around, but there's no, there's no denying that he's almost been like a, a sort of lightning rod for the dissatisfaction that's been seen so far. And, as I say, there's been fans questioning why certain selections are happening. So, uh, but at the moment, as it stands, no, uh, I don't believe there's any sort of desire or appetite for a, a head coach change. And the other thing I'd add is, obviously, they have had a, they've they've gone through these managers or head coaches so much. Um, there hasn't really been that continuity there. Of course, it doesn't mean you stick with a, a manager or a head coach that isn't going to get you where you want to get to. And I think the other thing I'd say is, is that I do think that there is elements of what Charlton have done that have been good, you know, tying some of the young players down. I think Lloyd-Jones has been an excellent signing. Alfie May has as well. Terry Taylor, we don't know yet because of the injury that he's had uh, that have disrupted him. But I think there is a desire to kind of get things right. And I think there is more of a plan than what Thomas Sangard had. Um, but when you talk about the way that Thomas Sangard ran the club, Obviously, the kind of mess of that is part of the is part of the problem that they're sort of they're dealing with now. So that's a bit of a longer answer to what the question, but I think I think at the moment there's no there's no plans to change anything. I'm Zion Fleming, and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. Welcome back to part two of the South London Press Football Pod. We're going to move on to Millwall Football Club, who have found a little bit of form. Well. Good form under new boss Joe Edwards. I guess he's not really that new anymore. He's been in the, the job for a while now and it's starting to kick under him a little bit. We'll touch on that in a minute. But firstly, Rich, in terms of uh, Millwall and the transfer market, as this is probably going to be the main thrust of this pod as the window only opened a few days ago, What what's sort of Millwall plans heading into this January window? Uh, someone, Millwall1885, has asked about whether you think loans or, or permanent deals are, are on the cards this time around. It sounds like I'm sitting on the fence a bit with this answer, but I think there's a chance of, of, of both. I think uh, Millwall definitely have some thoughts of doing a, a permanent transfer, but I think they also equally might end up being a loan deal. So I think there's I think there's a couple of different avenues it can go down. I don't think the kind of indications I'd have was that there wouldn't necessarily be really super early activity for Millwall. I mean, in transfer windows in the past, they've not been a side that I would say have um, sort of had a scattergun approach in transfer windows. And so I think they tend to kind of weigh things up and work quite methodically. Um, so I think the answer to that is, I think we got I think we got asked in a pod, of, maybe the last pod of the pod before, how much business I thought there would be that Millwall would do. And I said, I didn't think there would be loads. I thought it would be, a little bit. Um, and I think that probably still applies. Um, I mean, obviously, the team as well have massively picked up in terms of results. So that helps. And um, so I, I guess, again, that would, but even prior to that, there wasn't talk that it had to be ultra quick business, which is going back onto Charlton a bit different. They want to try and get players in as quickly as they can. 
So, um, yeah, I think everyone pretty happy with the way things are going at Millwall at the moment. I mean, Joe yeah. Edwards, when I spoke to him earlier this week, though, he had described himself as having a bit of man flu that um, Andy Myers and um, Adam Barrett had got as well. But luckily, it timed for them having a couple of days off after what had been a really busy schedule. So Monday and Tuesday, their players were off and they're back in today. But I imagine having man flu after flying through the Christmas fixture period and taking maximum points probably makes it a bit easier. Yeah. I, I was looking at the squad the other day and I know you mentioned about people asking whether they thought Mil- you, whether you thought Millwall needed a, to do a lot in this January. I, I don't think they do. Maybe one or two additions maximum or however many sort of something like that. But it doesn't doesn't need to be major surgery to this squad, does there? No, I don't think so. Not at the moment. I think uh, I think the question mark could be around a couple of players that are older heads of the team as we go forward because uh, Sean Hutchinson with a, a, a really accomplished finish at Bristol City, he's he's out of contract at the end of the season. Um, Ryan Leonard did it as well. And I think if you look at the moment, Ryan Leonard is getting a lot of love from the Millwall fan base. I mean, I think I'd, I'd said some stuff before about how um, when Ryan Leonard was re-signed, there were fans saying, why have we done this? You know, he's got he's had injuries. And I go back to what I say all the time. He has been a massive player for Millwall. And when we talk about players, that their value is not just in terms of their performances, but their performances are excellent. Ryan Leonard kind of epitomises that. And so there's a couple that are interesting there because if, if Millwall, as they go, start thinking about, you know, do we want to start moving things around in the squad? People like Lenny, he's been absolutely excellent. And then you've got someone like Hutch, who, again, has picked, by his own admission, has picked up more injuries in recent years. But when he plays, is very, very good and very, very influential. So I think there's a couple of interesting ones there. As you say, they've got uh, Ida Mark, who's kind of come into the side as well, um, started against QPR on Boxing Day, played really well, played really well in the Norwich game, then was used off the bench at Bristol City. Um, so they've got they've got a nice mix. And, um, you know, they've got obviously Cusper and Ore sort of, I think, sort of back middle of this month probably as well. So um, I think when you look at the squad, it's fairly well set. Um, yeah. And he's got a few selections. I think Joe Edwards said himself he's got a selection headache really with Wes Harding probably back maybe for Leicester, but if not after that. And, you know, do you bring him back into the team? Because he hadn't he hadn't let anybody down and he performed really well. So it's a nice position to be in for them, basically. Yeah. Speaking of Idamo, you spoke to him for this week's paper. What did he have to say? Yeah, he's a good lad, Idamo. And uh, I, I, I liked one of his quotes. Um, I said to him, uh, what's your favourite game you've had? Is it, you know, the, the you know, which match would you pick out? And he picked out Norwich as his favourite game, the one at the Den the other day. Uh, he said the atmosphere that was created at the Den that evening was unbelievable. I wanted the game to start all over again when it finished because it was that good, which I thought was really nice. I mean, it was, the Den was absolutely pumped for that one, helped by Ashley Barnes, uh, basically um, sailing very close to the wind of getting sent off in that match. Um and uh, so, yeah, really good value. Um, obviously, recently signed his new deal. We talk about that in the paper. We talk about the fact he was linked in the Irish media with Atletico Madrid. Um, 
before the end of last year when he was playing for Republic of Ireland under 21s. He's the young, I think we've said it before, Ed, he's the young, he's the youngster that's kicked on this year. It hasn't been Ramon mm. SA so far. It has been Idamo. He is so quick. He's so direct. Um, he's just, I think the problem he might have moving forward is that he'll become a bit of a marked man in terms of the opposition will know about him and he'll get teams doubling up on him and stuff like that. But exciting town. And uh, yeah, so that's the interview in the paper. And it was, yeah, he was good values. When he signed the deal, he said that working under Joe Edwards kind of felt key. He wants to improve, feels he can improve under him and, and really sort of kick his career on. Yeah. Uh, I thought I'd, it's worth mentioning to you that I thought about handing in my resignation this morning when I saw the headline that you put on the George Savile piece that so smells like team spirit. I'm not sure what was I'm not sure what was going through your head there with that one. It was a, a little little nod to uh, Nirvana, Ed. I'm sure you probably yeah. know the song, don't you? But uh, yeah, just one of those ones, mate. Can't win them all. I'm not saying every single headline I put up is any good, but um, yeah, I don't. The Savile one's a really hard one for me, the red card, because I hate the tackles. Like I, I said, I said on the, the takeaways I did for the website, I, I get that normally it's a yellow, but I just think that when um, when it's that obvious, it's not like a shirt tag and stuff like that. I just, I just don't like seeing them because I think it frustrates. Don't get me wrong, I understand it's ta- game management and everything else, but you stop an attack and it makes it probably takes away some of the more exciting moments there could be in games because you can get a couple of players do that and just pick up a yellow so um personally i think when it's a really clear kind of pretty flagrant sort of attempt to clip the player i do think sometimes if they started making them all red cards across the board it would make it would probably help the game a little bit but it was exactly similar to the one that Jed Wallace got read for a few years back I was at that game when he when he got sent off uh, Joe Jerome said to me this week though that they weren't contesting the red card Millwall were contesting the severity of the punishment how many how many mm. games he got uh, but anyway the band's been upheld and so you know Sav's got another couple of games to miss um, he's been really good Sav again this season I think when we talk about sort of big personalities and players that have kind of been there when Millwall have needed them. You know, George Savile's been there, not just this season, but other seasons. So it's certainly no reflection on, on Sav. I think he's a, I think he's a really good player, but yeah. So anyway, but so apologies about the headline. Um, <laughs> I may be leaving to you in the future, mate. Extra no, work <laughs> yeah. Uh, in terms of Millwall as a whole, we obviously had a lot of questions, a lot of people saying that it's really started to to click under Joe Edwards in recent weeks. Obviously, five unbeaten in the championship, three wins on the bounce, terrific win at Liam Manning's Bristol City recently. We're going to hear from the, the Millwall boss about, you asked him in his press conference there about why it's clicked under him in recent weeks. But why do you think it's, it's starting to move in the right direction and Millwall are heading back to back to the sort of in, uh, intriguing positions in the in the championship table where the playoffs aren't necessarily... Two out of question. I think um, when I'm watching the QPR game, I think when um, that was such a big moment for them that they finally managed to get a result, a, a result over the line. And I think before that, you know, you, the Huddersfield game was a real sickener because they they did enough to win that game, and then there's the late penalty, and you end up not getting the result. But what they sort of did was they went away to Stoke. I think the the, the shape was probably better out of possession and they managed to kind of 
you know, work well, get the clean sheet there. And from there, well, as we say, four four shutouts in a row. I think I put in the last takeaways I did that the XG expected goals of those next three games, none of those teams have more than about 0.7 as a, as a XG. And I think for one of those games, it was like 0.29 or something. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, like, I think when you look at that, um, it what what it, what it shows is that they've just got it right defensively. And I think with that then comes some of the confidence that you get on the ball and they've made better decisions in the final third. And things have just gone for them a little bit. And I think sometimes that's what happens. So um, that's what I would say. I mean, I've only seen the, because of the way, <coughs> obviously I split between the clubs for work. I've only seen the Norwich and QPR games as a 90-minute sample. Um, but, I mean, they're away form. Millwall's away form all season uh, has been really good. I'm just going to see if I can actually get their record up. So they're fourth in the form guide. For, they're fourth in the table for away form. And there's a load of clubs on 17, including Leeds. Uh, Southampton have taken 23 and Ipswich 25. Leicester, which is ridiculous, 32 points uh, mm. away from home. But their away form, by and large, has been good. It's been the den that's been more of an issue. But uh, certainly those last couple of home games, it's really, I saw a load of fans saying after the Norwich game, that was proper, that was proper wall, really enjoyed it. You know, so they kind of got that home form, that home feel back a little bit. If I'm honest, it's it's really hard to say what, what has made it suddenly click. Um, a lot of the, you know, from my point of view, any, anything we've been working on on the training pitch, which is, which is quite little in the period we've just had, you know, you're not, you're not out on the training pitch for long periods of time working at the working at kind of match intensity because you could you're continuously lowering the physical load because of how many games there are but anything we have been speaking about here at the training ground or working on has been pretty consistent for a period of time now um like i said to, to where, where i probably would have been critical of the players at times for making errors that were were costing us i'd, I'd equally give the players the credit now that the the basics you know basics was a word i was using a lot when we were costing points against uh you know, even in the games like Huddersfield and Sunderland, where we were dropping points, as well as the games like Leicester's and Ipswich, where we were getting beaten for just soft goals, um, just simple, simple decision and, and doing your job around the penalty area, set plays, a lot of the basics. I think it goes like that, doesn't it? Players have runs where they they can hit poor form, and if you get four or five or six players in that spell at once, it can be difficult. Um, we've just we've hit a period where it's been the complete opposite, and, and a lot of players have played well in the last four or five games. And I think that does just come from, you know, staying together and staying calm at the training ground, which has always happened. You know, although the, it became a five, six, seven game run without a win, I don't think you would have come to Calmont and felt it. You wouldn't have felt a, a training ground where people were you know, moping or there was any division in the group. So I've said that all along, that I like the, the togetherness and the way the lads come in every day after each setback and keep going. Um, and yeah, we, we, we've stayed consistent with what we've done and found a system through that period that's, that's that we've stuck with and probably suits this group at the moment. Um, and, and just carried on improving at the stuff we've been working on. And it, it won't it won't stay that way forever. We know that. You know, we, we played some really good football, I thought, at Bristol City. There, there'll be days where we're trying bits that came off against Bristol um, and it, it won't come off so well. It, for sure, it'll be up and down still. But um, we've just been in good form. And I think sometimes it is as simple as that. Welcome back to part three of the South London Press Football Pod. And uh, we're going to talk Crystal Palace. Um, Palace 
we're recording this pre the Everton game uh, in the FA Cup on, on Thursday night. There will be uh, on our website, if you go there, there'll be the, the action and Ed's, Ed's, uh, con- uh, Ed's content from the game. So worth checking it out on there. But we felt with it not being a Premier League game, the way that things are kind of slid this week, it's still better to record in advance. Still, still things to talk about for Crystal Palace. Most notably, one of my FPL key men, a man that has scored points, a man that has been a big <laughs> differential, Michael Elise, who loads of other FPL content creators were saying, get on Michael Elise now with Salah and Song going off with their respective countries. Nightmare, Ed. Nightmare for me, which I know is the main thing to worry about. But <laughs> uh, he's out. Tell me, tell me more. Yeah, unfortunately, he has picked up a hamstring injury. I saw him do it in the uh, in the Brentford game. I saw he was in a foot race, chasing the ball back. Was obviously one of the the main things that Michael Elise has dramatically not even improved on. But one of the main sort of key areas of this game is his defensive work tracking the ball back in the 90th minute and I see him just pull down and, and reach for his sort of hamstring and I could immediately tell that it's pinged. Um, Roy Hodgson confirmed in his press conference yesterday that he'll be without the uh, the French youngster for today's game against Everton um, and he wasn't really keen to put a sort of time frame on how long Elise could be out for. Obviously, he's been a tremendous asset for the football club, especially in recent weeks since he's come back from injury. I think it's five goals and one assist in, in nine Premier League appearances. Um, seen with some of the goals that he scored, they've been sort of big moments. For me, he'd been turning into that sort of Wilfred Zaha-esque match winner for Crystal Palace. I think I was having the conversation with Selzy, obviously Adam Selzy, who's been on the podcast before. Um, we were talking about whether he's actually better than Wilfred Zaha. I think Michael Elise has a higher ceiling than Wilfred Zaha. Obviously, things went against Wilf in terms of his move to Manchester United not quite working out. Um I think Michael Lise could step into any football club in the world and and easily become the the match winner for them. A tremendous talent, but his injury record has been a real problem for him. Um, he's never had a pre-season with the football club. He's always had injuries. Obviously, this hamstring injury, although it's not the same place in his hamstring, again, it's the same leg. So he's had recurring sort of problems in, in, in this sort of area. Um, rushed himself back too quickly. Nobody's fault with that one, but just as he was coming back to fold for Roy Hodgson in recent weeks when he did have hamstring surgery over the summer, pinged again out for a couple more weeks. Uh, And now as Roy Hodgson finally gets he and Eberichieze fit and on a football pitch for the first time, um, Saturday was actually the first time against Brentford. It was actually the first time for the football club that they've scored in the same game together. Um, And just as he gets those two fit and available, uh, Elise's out again and... um, Although I think Roy Hodgson's comments suggested that sent a bit of panic into the fan base because they thought it was going to be another six-month one for Elise. I don't think it's as quite as serious as, as, serious as that. Um, so hopefully it should only be... I'd, I'd be cautious actually to put a time frame on it, but I don't think it'll... I, I, I'd confidently say I don't think it's as serious as the one that he suffered over the summer that required surgery. So um, slightly positive note in that respect, but still losing a player of his quality is uh, is a is a damning sort of thing for the squad because, um, yeah, just in terms of where he is at the moment and his style of player tremendous talent and uh, and winning matches and Roy Hodgson needed to win that match. He was in, under great pressure um, in terms of Steve Cooper being linked with his job. Um, I think there was a chance that Roy Hodgson could have 
could have gone if, if things didn't go his way against against Brentford on on that Saturday. So um, yeah, Michael Elise is, is is the match winner for Crystal Palace. So losing him is, is a terrible terrible blow. I noticed um, obviously there was the link that suggested that Manchester United were were looking at, at Elise now. Uh, I've just been looking at uh, the Telegraph's Luke Edwards, who's been on BBC's Transfer Gossip Daily podcast. He was saying that, in his view, it's the starting gun being fired on what could possibly, could probably prove to be, he says in his words, a three, four or five-way fight for his signature. Doesn't think that Palace will have any trouble keeping hold of Michael Elise this month. But he says when that release clause becomes active, which I think there's a suggestion it becomes active in the summer, there's very mm. little that they can do. Um, obviously, the BBC's website says, might that be Man City? Could it be Chelsea? Could it be Arsenal? What, what, what do you think about his longer-term future, Ed? Do you think that you can... I mean, obviously, Wilf ended up staying and Palace were able to see off interest in him or clubs didn't get to the right level. I'm thinking Arsenal as an example of that. Um, they did have an interest, but then it was too rich for them, the deal. What, what do you think with Elise, though? I think he could play for any football team in the world that he wanted to, honestly, Rich. He's, he is an unbelievable player to watch in the flesh. You're, we're privileged enough to get to go to football games. Obviously, we're working, but we don't have to pay for the match ticket. Obviously, our, it is our job, though. We go there to report, tell people what happened, do everything after the game. But watching him... Is 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 actually a, a real pleasure. Turning up to see him play football is 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 a joy. Um, I think he could play for Barcelona, Real Madrid, Paris Saint Germain, whoever he wanted to play for. I think he could do it. Um, I think he's probably gone one step beyond Chelsea now. I know that they were the, the team who obviously thought they triggered the release clause in the summer. He ends up signing this new deal with an increased release clause and increased wage. Um, I think he's probably gone beyond that now and I think he could go and play for whichever football club he wanted to. Um, the, the, the Manchester United one's interesting because obviously Dougie Freeman's been linked with a with a move there and if Dougie went there, then you could see that sort of falling into play. He obviously knows everything about Elise, knows how to get the best out of him, knows what players would suit his style of play and you probably end up building the team around him because he's that sort of talented individual. I think the interesting thing with Elise is what country he wants to represent international level. England, Algeria, France, whoever he wanted to would would benefit greatly from his from his assets as a footballer. Um, obviously, England, I think, tried at under-21 level, but he chose France. Um, Algerian press have been talking sort of relentlessly that, that he's one that they could get hold of as well. But watching him play is sort of similar to Riyad Mahrez in, in some way. It's very predictable when he gets onto his left foot what he's going to do. And under Pep Guardiola, if he's still at Manchester City the next two, three years. And I think that's the big thing that Michael Elise would need to ask because he doesn't want a similar situation to what happened with Wilf at Manchester United when he goes there thinking Sir Alex Ferguson's going to be the manager and then he leaves and David Moyes comes in and the whole thing sort of turned around. If Pep Guardiola is going to be at Manchester City for the foreseeable future and he gets to work with Michael Elise, Michael Elise will be one of the best players in the world. I think he is already one of the best players in the world. I think he would be up in there in the sort of five, six, seven top category of players. He is a natural talent and it's effortless the way he does it. You know, I'm watching the 16-year-old play darts last night. Uh, I know it's sort of very chalk and cheese, but uh, it, it was sort of, it's so natural to him that he was hitting those perfect numbers and stuff like that. It's it's natural to Elise when he gets on the football and what he does. 
in terms of the actual transfer window itself, we've obviously had a fairly strong theme of that, as you'd expect running through this pod. What what, what do you think is likely for Palace? Mm. Well, they need they need a central midfielder. That's that's one they're after. I think Adam Wharton they've held held a long standing interest in from Blackburn. I think it's probably quite a difficult deal to do in terms of the number wise. Um, they're looking for left back competition for and cover for Tyreek Mitchell. I think he's been playing the whole season slightly injured or been playing with a little bit of an injury here and there. So um, getting someone in to help, obviously they were looking at Lewis Hall in the summer who would have been versatile enough to play at left back or in midfield. I think that's a similar sort of deal they're probably going to have to look at this time around. Loans are probably going to be the, the predominant sort of um, focus of the window. Uh, I'm not sure how much money there is to go around. I think if there's the, the right ability to do someone who's going to help Crystal Palace in the longer term, um, then I think the board might splash the cash on it, as they've shown with Dean Henderson in the summer. But it's got to be the right the right fit for the football club. I think the main and most drastic thing that needs attention in this January window is is a left winger. The squad imbalance is is pretty sort of surreal. Sometimes you're looking at it thinking Palace have a, a right back. Okay, they've sorted that out in terms of Nathaniel Klein's athleticism, but they have a right back who doesn't naturally go forward, and then they have Michael Elise in front of him. And they have a left back who naturally goes forward in Tyreek Mitchell, but then there's nobody in front of him to do that attacking side of play. So the imbalance in the squad is is constantly always there. I think the fact they failed to replace Wilfred Zaha over the summer has been the biggest um, mistake that, in terms of the recruitment. And then you're looking at it thinking Mateus Francher hasn't quite settled. He's going to get his first start tonight against Everton in the FA Cup. So it'll be interesting to see what he can do and, and where he's at in his development. Roy Hodgson spoke highly of him in his press conference yesterday, but I'm hoping it's going to be a similar situation to when Elise burst on at, at Millwall in the FA Cup. I think that was probably one of his first or second starts with the football club comes on and yeah, he tore Millwall apart in that second half of, I think it was a pretty difficult afternoon for Scott Malone. Um, but I'm hoping that's the same thing for Mateus Francher tonight. Um, but Palace need experience in that area too. Someone like a Dan Juma, um, you saw with Jack Harrison or Sinistera who were available on loan. That's the sort of similar thing they need to be doing. Obviously, if you do get another player in that position, it takes Jordan Ayew out, who has got sort of attributes that are still valuable to Roy Hodgson, aren't they? I wonder where he would fit. I guess maybe a rotation option on that side if if he, if he, if he needs that. Mm. Uh, Jordan's played through the middle or, or on the right. And I think with Michael Elise sort of... Um, injury troubles, let's say, of, of late. Um, having Jordan I in the squad is key because he's so versatile. Um, as far as I understand, I think it's going to be difficult for Jean-Philippe Mateta to leave the football club this January. Obviously, we reported about the interest from Germany. Uh, I think there's interest from Fenerbahce in Turkey as well, as far as I understand. So there's, there's definitely clubs who like him. His performances of late have been exceptional. He is now the number one sort of striker in terms of Roy Hodgson's thinking, I think, in terms of him leading the line for Crystal Palace. Some of the link-up play has been excellent, Rich, and I'm standing there, I'm sitting there in the in the press box, I'm seeing Roy Hodgson physically stand up and applaud some of the stuff that John-Philippe Mateta is doing at the moment. So he's been very impressed with him and speaks very highly of him at the moment. Obviously, he's benefited from Odson Edouard's injury, but um, Jordan does offer a lot to the squad, um, but at the same time, what do you want from your attacking players? It's it's goals. And if Crystal Palace can find a left winger who has the ability to produce goals and assists on consistent basis on a consistent basis, then I don't think they'd have any any qualms in in pushing Jordan Ayew to a sort of 
supportive role, let's say, from for the Premier League squad. Just to kind of one more to ask, really, in terms of transfer links, when we recorded when we record this on Thursday morning, as it is, uh, being reports about Roddy Edwards and that Palace are in for uh, uh, are in for the Peterborough defender, who's obviously very highly regarded, but uh, indications we've had are, that's not particularly likely or not happening. Actually, is probably the easier thing to say. It's not. It's just not true. But uh, Eddie and Nketia mentioned as well. So a couple of Edwards and Nketia two that have been linked with the Palace in the last last few days. Yeah, as far as we understand, Ronnie Edwards isn't one that Crystal Palace are chasing this January transfer window. They've obviously been long-standing admirers of him. Um, England under-20 international at League One, a phenomenal defender for the standard as well. Uh, I think that's worth saying. I think it would be one that would make sense for Crystal Palace, just in terms of the fact that the likelihood is you're probably going to lose one of Mark Gahey or, or Joachim Anderson come the summer. So if you could buy Ronnie Edwards now for a, a cheaper price than let's say, usual, um, and then loaning back to Peterborough for his developments for a further six months. That wouldn't be the, the worst thing in the world. I think that'd be a pretty good deal. But in terms of Crystal Palace and wanting to do that, I don't think there's much interest in, in doing that this this January. Um, I wouldn't even say it's a priority. If Crystal Palace have £10 million to spend, I think it's pretty clear where they're, where they're going to put that money. I think Peterborough, probably a similar case with, with Johnson Clark Harris. They're, they're looking to sell. Um, I think they want to get Ronnie and, and a few others off the wage bill, not wage bill, sorry. I think they want to sell them to rebuild their squad. Um, it's interesting, actually, the way they do it. They manage to find these gems, pluck them out from Barnet like Efron, Mason Clark, and then sell them on for a huge profit. It's a very commendable way of doing it. But I think they're probably, uh, well, I don't think Crystal Palace are interested in doing this one this time around. And then as far as Eddie and Ketia uh, and the links to that one, um, I wouldn't suggest that Crystal Palace are probably going to be looking at a striker and thinking that's the main priority. Hugo Ekatike is available if Palace wanted to do that one on loan, but I think there's a a need to maybe try and sort out a sort of maybe a, a relationship with PSG on that one in that front again. I don't know how far that one's progressed in recent months while the space between the January uh, space between the summer and January window. So um yeah, I think Palace might move on to different targets in that respect because striker isn't really a problem for them at the moment. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't suggest that either of those two are high up on the priority list at the moment. I'm Jay Cooper and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. Welcome back to part four of the South London Press Football Pod and we're on to AFC Wimbledon and that's going to be the game that you're going to be at at the weekend, Ed. Um, obviously home to Ipswich Town in the um, FA Cup third round. Um, just talking about that game, what are you kind of expecting from it, first of all? I mean, obviously, Ipswich might make changes, but flying, mm. well, going very, very well in the Championship, despite a probably recent downturn in form. They will be they will be favourites going into this one, I would have thought, no doubt. They will be, yeah. But um, it's quite a nice cup tie, isn't it? I think Wimbledon have had a few of these over the course of the season. Um, Chelsea in the EFL Cup, Coventry, the round before that was quite a nice cup tie as well. So Wimbledon, Ipswich, two big historic clubs in terms of everything they've done in the game. I know Wimbledon split in two in terms of their club, but it's, it's completely different. We see it as a whole club. So um, it's quite a nice cup tie. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. In terms of Wimbledon, though, it's the first time they're going to be without Ali Alhamidi and Omar Bagel, both gone away on Asia Cup duty. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they line up. I'm expecting Josh Davison to be the sort of the one that leads the line in, in this time around where they're gone. Um, 
but it's going to be a, a tough ask against a Kieran McKenna side who, um, although they've slightly gone off the boil in recent weeks in terms of their championship form, have been excellent since he's gone there. Obviously, he's one that I think Crystal Palace have admired in terms of their long-term thinking of, in terms of managerial plans. So um, should be it should be a good game at Plough Lane. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, one of the questions actually that we've had this week is from Plough Lane by Numbers. And he has asked, how do you think Wimbledon will get on in January without Alhamidi and Bugel? So, yeah, what would you, mm. what would you, what, what are your thoughts on that? As you say, this is kind of the start of this period where they're not going to have those two players. Yeah, I think it's going to be really tough for them. I think um, if you look at any team across football, whether it's Manchester City losing Erling Haaland and Kevin De Bruyne or Crystal Palace losing Michael Elise and Eberich Jeze, if you take two of your best players out of the team, and in terms of Ali Alhamidi, he is the best striker in League Two for my pound for pound valuation, pound for pound sort of performance and goal rate since he's come to AFC Wimbledon. And what Omar Bugel brings to the team in terms of his experience now, a very technical player as well. I didn't realise until I watched him play amazing touch, amazing ability to find thread a ball through um, a crowd of defenders or to win possession and hold it up and wait for others to join. In terms of what those two bring to Johnny Jackson's sides, it's, it's immeasurable. So it's obviously going to be very tough. Um, Wimbledon are going to look to bring in a striker as far as I understand. Elliot List was one that was mentioned, but there's nothing in that. don't think it's one they're looking at at the moment. Um, Luke Plange actually has gone back to Crystal Palace and John Kamani Gordon is also going back. And I think they're two that were mentioned over the summer that Wimbledon could potentially to look at to get in on loan. And as, as we've spoken about before, They've never really tapped into the Crystal Palace pool, so I'd be interested to see what those two could do in a League Two team and under Johnny Jackson. I think Luke Plange has, has actually really struggled since he signed for Crystal Palace. Um, I, don't, I don't think any of the loans have really worked out for him too well. Obviously, this Carlisle one, uh, the one before he had as well, didn't really work. So him coming to League Two, uh, I think the one before was at Lincoln, actually. Sorry, my bad. Yeah, the one he had at Lincoln, the one he had at Carlisle, haven't quite gone to plan. I'd love to see him drop down to League Two and really find his form. I think John Kamani Gordon did well last time he was on loan at Carlisle in League Two. So there's um, there's definitely a chance for those two if if Wimbledon did decide to use another loan spot to bring one of those in. I think that would work. Um, but in terms of how I see Wimbledon coping, I still think there's some really talented players who can create moments. James Tilly, Josh Neufeld, although it hasn't pay, it maybe worked out in terms of goals and assists. He's still got that natural raw pace that can cause defences problems. I think Tilly, although he's gone off the ball in recent weeks and been in and out of the squad, tremendous talent who can find the back of the net and create moments. And then you have Connor Evans as well, although his future is also up in the air in terms of Stockport and whether they're going to recall him. Um, but for the moment, as far as when we're recording right now on the Thursday, it looks like he's still an AFC Wimbledon player. So as long as that keeps rolling on until January 1st, January 31st, pardon, um, I think there's enough creative players to create moments for Wimbledon. It's just about whether Josh Davison, Harry Pell has played in that forward role a little bit as the almost battling Ram who's going to mess up defenders um, and try and ruffle ruffle their sort of feathers to create moments. But um, yeah, it's just about whether they can find the back of the net that way. Uh, I also think Aaron Sassu is a tremendous young talent as well. I think he's got the ability to score goals at at this level, I don't think he's he's um, really had a he's had a few moments where he's been in the team, but he hasn't really had a consistent run. So this January could prove a really good chance for him as well. 
And just generally on the window itself, are you anticipating too much? We've touched on it before, haven't we, that keeping the lone players was an absolute priority. And uh, Johnny Jackson was was obviously quoted in our paper previously as being optimistic that that was not going to be a problem. But uh, mm. is there anything else to kind of report on that side of things as to what you think could and couldn't happen? As far as I understand, I think it might be, the likelihood is, is that Jack Curry might be staying this, this January window. And then you're looking at, whether Wimbledon are going to trigger that contract extension, which is obviously in the club's favour. They're not going to lose him for free. So I can see them doing that. And then him potentially going in the summer, I'm not sure. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if Wimbledon want to lose him. I don't think they do. I don't think they want to lose any of their players. They have a very good core there. I think the main thing for them as well is is keeping hold of Joe Lewis. Um, Stockport obviously lost Alfie Pond. He went back to his parent club. I think they they have signed another defender, but... Lots of talk going around on social media that they're looking to recall Lewis and they want to bring him back. He's obviously been, along with Alex Bass, I'd say, signing of uh, and Omar Bigot. I think they're probably the signings of the summer um, in terms of what they've brought to the team. Joe Lewis, tremendous defender, gets involved with goals as well, scored a brace against uh, against Colchester and also sets up one with a tremendous through ball over the top for Davison to finish. Um, should say, actually, Josh Davison's found some some really good form in front of goal. So he has, it, with, with Omar and, and Ali going, he has found some an, an ability to find goals from from somewhere of late. And that's his, uh, it's obviously going to play into his favour of getting a run of games as well. But um, in, in terms of what the January sort of plan should be, consolidate, uh, making sure that Ali Alhamidi is still an AFC Wimbledon player at the close of the window, which um, I think is probably going to play into their hands a little bit. The fact that he's away with, Iraq for the Asia Cup because obviously going to make a deal deal a bit more difficult to do. Um, so just consolidating and making sure that if you do lose these loanies, Alex Bass, Joe Lewis, and Connor Evans, you have three players with the ability to step straight in. Another thing I could see happening is obviously Charlie Lakin's loan is is going to come to an end as well. I could see him going back and Morgan Williams being reinstated into the first team fold. I wonder how much Don's fans have been keeping an eye on Iraq and hoping for their progression. I'm just having a look. Indonesia on January the 15th, Japan on January the 19th and Vietnam on the 24th of Jan are their group games. So uh, second round sort of scheduled, you know, like after that, it's, uh, I suppose if, if, if they do go out uh, at the group stage scenario, then Ali will be back right towards the end of the window. So uh, yeah. another reason to be keeping an eye on their results. The bad thing is both of them are actually going to miss the rescheduled MK game as well, so which is uh, a bit of blow because I would have loved to have seen what they could have done up against them. Uh, we're going to bring an end to episode 10 of the South London Press Football Pod. Rich, thank you very much for joining me again this afternoon. No problems, Edmund. Thanks for, thanks for hosting again impeccably. Yeah, uh, we will be back next week, I'm going to assume, with a, another pod. Obviously, lots going on, lots of transfers, lots of speculation. So we'll try and keep you right across it. Um, hopefully, lots of deals as well for all of our clubs. I'm sure that'll make all the fans happy. So uh, but we'll see. It should be a, an interesting window. January always is.